Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast, insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. My name is Michael Lutito. I'm the co-chair of Littler's Workplace Policy Institute and a Littler shareholder. As co-chair of WPI, I focus on assisting the employer community and keeping abreast and influencing the legislative and regulatory developments that impact the workplace. They did somewhat differently. You call most of your Littler lawyer contacts to find out what the law is. You call WPI to find out what the law is about to be because we're making it. And when you talk about workplace law, when you talk about workplace strategies, clearly the workplace has never been more important from a humanistic and policy perspective as it is today. Indeed, the president often speaks of how he will be the greatest job creator in the history of the world. And if that vision is ever going to be realized, HR professionals will have a lot to do with its fulfillment. Which takes me back to the year 2000. I was privileged to be SHRM's chair that year. You all are familiar with SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, the largest HR society of its kind in the world. And as the chair, I was tasked with traveling around the world, making different sorts of speeches on behalf of the society. And my theme speech was entitled, Is HR Too Important? for HR to do. Well, considering my audience was HR professionals, uh, that title was generally found to be pretty provocative, which of course was one of the reasons why I adopted it. And while no one ever came up and said it directly to my face, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there were a few people that were at least mildly insulted that I would even ask such a question. But it sure got people's attention And I hope with that title that I have your attention for the next 10 or 15 minutes or so. I began all of those many talks by asking the audience two very fundamental questions. The first one was, does your organization think that your people are among your most important assets? Invariably, without a moment of hesitation, virtually every hand in the room would enthusiastically go up, and people would nod and smile. And I wasn't too surprised, because I kind of suspected that that would be the case, because all you have to do is look at any company's website, and after you go through the mission and the vision and their core values, you'll see that one of those core values is that people are among their most important assets. But the second question that I posed was this. Is HR considered among your most important departments. There was a big pause after that one, and only about 10% of the hands in the room went up. And so my question to the room was, if people are your most important asset, how is it that HR is not your most important department? And that disconnect, which is really in some organizations enormous, is the focus of what it is that I want to talk about. And that I think takes me back to where we started a moment ago when I said that the president wants to be this great job creator. The president says that we need to build American again, that we need to buy American again, that we need to give people those great paying jobs again, that we need to unshackle business from wasteful rules and regulations that impact job growth. As the president likes to say, let's go. 
Well, Mr. President, we ain't going anywhere without HR. Let's take, for example, the need for hiring all of these individuals. You know, our unemployment rate right now is at about 4.7%. The market participation from individuals in the workplace is slightly inching up, but it's still at an historic low. And despite the fact that there is such a low unemployment rate, despite the fact that there are jobs that need to be done, people don't seem to want to engage. And it's kind of a mystery. As my friend Marianne Levine of Politico said recently in a post, she raised this question. It was in need of better HR. And the thrust of her article dealt with the Border Patrol, which of course is also very much in the news these days. And the president and others have said that we need to hire 5,000 new agents this year. That's an interesting goal. But last year, the Border Patrol was only able to hire 485 individuals, and they lost 1,000 people through terminations, retirements, and resignations. So they had a net loss of about 500. So how are we going to go from a net loss of 500 to a gain of 5,000? I guess we better ask HR because they're the people persons that are trying to help us design the policies, the procedures, the engagements in order to make sure that your place is among the most attractive to get the best people in order to help your company be as successful as it can be. You know, in a similar vein to the Border Patrol, but maybe to another extreme, there's 223,000 job openings in the United States today for software engineers. You know, these are great, high-paying, exciting jobs. And I ask myself, how could it be that there's almost a quarter of a million of job openings for such desirable opportunities? Labor Secretary nominee Acosta was asked about the skill gap at the Senate confirmation hearing dealing with his nomination a short time ago. Some of the senators pointed out that the Department of Labor in fiscal year 2016 spent $9 billion on employment training. The president in his skinny budget has proposed a 20% reduction or thereabouts in the Department of Labor spending and a 20% reduction with respect to some of that workforce training spending. A number of senators were really concerned about that and they asked Mr. Acosta what his views were I thought he gave a very thoughtful answer by saying that all of these different programs, and I think there's more than 50 of them, really need a basic ROI analysis. We need to figure out not only spending the money, or as my old dear friend Mike Losey, the former CEO of SHRM, used to say, just throwing the money off the balcony, but we need to make sure that the money is being spent wisely and that there's a return on investment. Well, it seems to me that if we're going to redesign those programs, if we're going to make sure that the federal government, along with other kinds of public and private partnerships, have the kind of training initiatives that are necessary to close those skill gaps, to deal with the fact that some of the jobs of today are being blown up through technology, and those individuals need a pathway to the future, and we also need to prepare individuals for the training for the new jobs, some of which haven't even been defined yet. If we're really going to be successful in doing that, if we're really going to be able to be this job creation engine 
the greatest in history. We better go have a serious conversation with the HR folks because presumably they know best how to do it. You know, Senator Alexander, the chair of the HELP Committee that conducted the examination of Mr. Acosta, in introducing him as a candidate for labor secretary, said that the labor secretary is really a misnomer because it's really the secretary of the workforce. And, you know, I thought that that was extraordinarily insightful on Senator Alexander's part, because I agree that it's really about having someone in place who's representing the entire workforce so that America can be all that it can be and so that the American workforce can be all that it can be. But then I paused and posed a question to myself. If that's the case, then how come an HR professional isn't being examined? No knock on Mr. Acosta, who I think will be a great Secretary of Labor when confirmed, but it just goes back to this whole issue. Is HR too important for HR to do? Because if the answer to that is clearly no, then I would suggest to you that the next time we're looking for a Secretary of Labor, that an HR professional ought to step up and say, I'm ready, because they've got the experience, they've got the insights in order to be able to help us figure out these enormously complex problems. But, you know, even if we close the skill gaps of today, even if we create all of those great training programs to deal with all the technology and innovation that's unstoppable, how do we go about attracting individuals in the first instance? HR to the rescue. You know, one element of that strategy is obviously competitive pay. But comp is a function of productivity which has not been increasing very rapidly for at least the last decade. Indeed, in the last 11 years, our GDP growth has averaged about 2.1%. That is the longest period of time since 1929 and the Great Depression that we have had a GDP growth that has been less than 3%. So when you don't have that productivity growth, when you're dealing with those kinds of facts and figures, how do you come up with a rewarding comp strategy that's going to be able to attract individuals to your particular workplace. And this is particularly challenging since wage stagnation has been the norm from around 1999 through 2015. So what are the solutions? Don't ask me. I'm just a dumb labor lawyer. I think we better get HR in the room and try to figure out how we address some of those fundamental concerns. But even if we solve the pay problem, we know that pay is only one element of total comp. Because while pay has been stagnant from 1999 to 2015, healthcare costs for family coverage have risen over that period of time from $4,200 a year to $12,600 a year. 70% of the US population gets their health coverage through employers tax-free since the 1940s. But I doubt employees of today feel that they got a real nice raise from 99 to 2015 as a result of the amount of money that had to be spent in order to provide them with their health care coverage. One of the reasons for that is that even though the health care coverage in the United States is the most expensive in the world by about 5% over France, which is second, our health care outcomes are not number one. So one of the great debates today that's consuming our country is what to do about health care. Who should provide it? Should it be taxed? 
At what level? When? Should it be portable? Can sharing economy workers be entitled to get health care through their organization without risking a finding that their independent contractor status has now been converted to employee status? How do we pay for this when the country is confronted with a $20 trillion debt moving quickly to 21? These are the issues of the day that are consuming the president, all of the members of the House, and all of the members of the Senate. This is the issue that has been consuming the country for the last eight years, and we don't seem to have an answer. Well, maybe what we ought to do is tell the House and the Senate to take a break, which they do on occasion, and get a room full of HR people in the House and the Senate and let them figure it out. Because after all, it's HR's core competency. But even if we got a terrific pay and benefit package, job retention is also largely based on employee engagement. Better get those engagement hats on if we're going to spend another trillion dollars for infrastructure enhancements, since competition for talent is going to be fierce. Management employees need to really come together in order to have a cohesive, shared vision of what the company is trying to achieve by bringing along its greatest asset without which those goals would never be achieved. But I was struck by a Silicon Valley labor leader who said recently that it's his goal to have companies, quote unquote, fear their employees. Fear their employees. Really? Imagine getting up each morning going through the commute, which is stressful enough as it is, as you get geared up for another day of fear enhancement. I don't know about you, but I don't want to work there. Well, HR, you need to come up with that alternative strategy because otherwise individuals turning to a union may wind up being very appealing. And in fact, those same union leaders said that we wouldn't even begin focusing on the pay benefit issue as number one, but instead, we believe that the most important contribution that a union can make today is making sure that a company lives up to the ethical standards that it propounds for its workforce. I may be old-fashioned, but I don't think any company needs to have a union make sure that it's living up to its ethical standards. I think HR is the heart and soul of the organization. I think HR is the body that's making sure that those ethical standards are being realized every single day. And some of those ethics involve difficult balancing issues. We're consumed with issues around leave. Should it be paid? How is it going to be paid? How many days are individuals going to get? Is there a mandate? Is there not a mandate? The president has talked about paid leave with respect to maternity, paid leave with respect to paternity. Well, should HR say, why wait for the Congress to tell us what to do? Because typically, when the law is created, it's an economic laggard because it's not forward thinking. So if we're going to distinguish ourselves in the marketplace, if we're really going to be that employer of choice, if we're going to stand out to make certain that people want to knock down our doors in order to come here, if we want to have a job fair where we are pleased 
that the lines keep going out the door so that we can pick the best and the brightest. How progressive are we going to be and how are we going to pay for that? You know, the president has also said that one of the problems that the workplace has today is that it's being stagnated as a result of different kinds of rules and regulations. President has said that for every new rule being proposed, two have to go. The president has said that every single department of the government, including, of course, labor or the workforce department, needs to examine in the next 90 days or so which rules work and which don't. Well, to me, once again, we're talking about HR. You know, HR, what's your company's position with respect to the overtime rule? Were you comfortable at 47? Are you going to be comfortable at 33? Are you going to change the duties test? Are you going to start converting people? Are you going to leave them where they are? Yeah, there's a compliance function here. Sure, that's really important. Sure, you don't want to get sued for overtime violations. But more fundamentally, what's the explanation that you're going to make to a workforce when you have to go to somebody who say, you used to be exempt, but now you're non-exempt, and they wonder how come they got, quote, unquote, demoted? What do you say? HR, you got the script. One of the other issues that came up during Alex Acosta's hearing dealt with OSHA and some of the cutbacks that are taking place there and some of the rules like silica that are in various stages of promulgation and litigation and stays and the like. He was asked whether or not OSHA was going to really be able to deal with everything that they had to deal with in the workplaces of today. I don't want to second guess Mr. Acosta who did a great job during the hearing, but if I was sitting there, I would have said, you know what? We definitely need OSHA, but more importantly than that, we got the HR department making certain that when an individual comes to work in the morning with 10 fingers and 10 toes, that they go home with 10 fingers and 10 toes, because you know what? People are our most important asset. So we don't need OSHA to come in and tell us what to do. We need OSHA to help us in a partnership to make sure that we're exceeding everybody's expectation, not because the government wants us to, but because we think it's a moral imperative. The EEOC wants us to fill out a new EEO-1 form. Does it or doesn't it make sense? Well, they're looking at a pay gender. That was another issue that came up during the hearing. You know, the whole 80% pay gap, give or take, depending upon what study you want to read, 78%, 83%. Well, how do you justify that? What study has been undertaken? Senator Enzi said nobody should be discriminated on the basis of pay. No matter who that individual is, no matter what their gender is, no matter what their protected classes are. So how does HR make sure that that's absolutely being taken care of? And HR, I suggest to you that you even need to find who your employees are. International Franchise Association and other groups have been consumed over the last three to four years on joint employment issues. Others, especially the sharing economy, is consumed by the independent contractor issue. We published a paper late last year that in the last five years, the NLRB has reversed 4,559 years of prior precedent. Most HR professionals recognize the Labor Board as the handbook police. And for all of you listening, according to the Labor Board majority, you all have one thing in common. Your handbook's no good. Well, the president is calling on people to do a reexamination of these rules and regulations. 
at Littler's WPI, we are heavily engaged in that process on behalf of organizations. We're a pretty effective voice, and we know how to speak, and we know how to speak even when our clients aren't doing the speaking, because a lot of companies are afraid to speak out. But when I'm speaking, I want to make sure that I'm speaking correctly, because like I said, I'm just a dumb labor lawyer. It's the HR people that are out there at the front lines, the front lines of engagement, the front line of retention, the front line of compensation strategies, the front line of safety issues, the first line of making sure that the very values of the organization, the morality of the organization comes alive every single day. You know, when I concluded my speech in accepting the SHRM chair, I said to that audience that I was really proud to be an HR professional because the HR professionals are the individuals that are the engine for our workplaces and those workplaces are the engine for a lot of satisfaction that people get in our country. You know, HR, if anybody ever asks you the question, is HR too important for HR to do? You got a very, very simple answer. You know what? We were born ready. Our voice needs to be heard. Our voice will be heard. And we're happy to make a contribution, a contribution that really can't be done without the input of HR. So keep it up. We've got a heck of a lot of challenges. And if we can help give voice to some of your concerns and some of your strategies and some of your solutions, give me a call. Good day. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.